So we're looking at Ezekiel 22, 1 to 22, and I've titled this God's response to a litany of evils. God's response to a litany of evils. And I want us to look at the passage under three headings. You hopefully will see them up in a moment. Um, In the first five verses of Ezekiel chapter 22, God's response to the litany of evils is to recognize the worthless, the, the worthlessness of the deeds that are done. Next, God responds to a litany of evils by scattering the wicked. That's verses 6 to 16. And then finally, God gathers for wrath in verses 17 to 22. So recognize the worthless, scatter the wicked, and gather for wrath. So first, uh, recognize the worthless. This is verses 1 to 5. The Lord responds, one way that God responds to evil is by exposing it. And in exposing evil, God allows people to see just how worthless sin is. Ezekiel is told in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22 to speak against the city. And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. One way of judging is to say, this is what you're doing. Now, the abominations are highlighted in the following verses. We see verse three, you're a city that sheds blood. Also in verse three, You make idols to devile yourself. Verse four, uh, more, more blood, more idols. But importantly, verse four tells us the outcome of the blood and the idols. You become guilty by the blood that you have shed and you've you've been defiled by the idols that you've made. Your uh, blood, the, the blood that you shed did not bring you the gain or whatever, it, it, it didn't um, satisfy your vengeance, or whatever it was, for whatever reason you shed blood. Instead, your blood, the blood that you shed, has simply brought you guilt. Your idols, you thought maybe they would bring you power, control, wisdom, guidance. No, they have simply made you dirty, filthy, defiled, unclean. What's the response? How does God respond to this litany of evils, of shedding blood and idolatry. Well, it's in verse four, the very last sentence. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Jerusalem is the holy city. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 18, when there's a list of people in the city, Nehemiah eleven eighteen says, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. That is, there were 284 Levites in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the holy city, but not now, not now. Look, look at verse five. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. So the holy city's name is actually mud. How does God respond to wickedness? Well, he exposes it for the dirty, foul thing that it is. How powerful you felt, O Jerusalem, killing people willy-nilly. 
How, how strong and wise you must have thought. How, how in control playing with your idols. But the Lord will bring to light all that you've done. And he will expose you as the joke that you are. Again, verse 4. I've made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. You know, tabloids exist to tell us about what all the purportedly upright people are doing. Uh, sadly, we, we delight to read the sordid details of people's lives. The hypocrisy grips us. Uh, but it's actually really sordid. And when it's exposed, it's disgusting. And people's foolishness is exposed. I don't know if you remember, but in 2009, the then governor of South Carolina went missing. In the summer, I think it was June 2009, he went missing. And it was national news. Where has the governor of South Carolina gone? I think he was gone for a week. Well, then it was exposed that he was actually visiting his mistress in South America. And he gave a press conference. And during that press conference, his foolishness was exposed. I remember actually hearing the press conference and thinking that if his wife uh, had actually shot and killed him on national TV, there wouldn't have been a, uh, a jury in South Carolina that uh, would have convicted her, right? I didn't know the gun was loaded and I didn't see you standing there. You know, it was, it was a horrible thing. But the, the key point is how great it must have felt at the time to be a rich a pedigreed South Carolinian governor having an affair with someone in South America. But then when you have to describe it on national TV, when it's exposed, it's just gross. It's foolish. We should see our own sin that way. And we need to be reminded that there are sins that our culture can celebrate but we know are sorted. And then there are things that we do or things that we think that if brought to light, would not be, we would not be as cool as we think we are when we're sinning. On the contrary, we would recognize the foolishness, uh, the sordidness, the dirtiness of our sin. So God exposes the worthlessness of what we think is so magnificent. That's our first point. God recognizes and causes others to recognize the worthlessness of sin. And that's one of his responses to evil. Here's another in verses 6 to 16. God scatters the wicked. So in these texts, I'll kind of jump to the end as the Lord pronounces something and then we'll work back through it. So he scatters the wicked. Verse 15, I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. God scatters the wicked. It's almost like your wickedness is too concentrated in Jerusalem and I need to clean it out. I need to dilute you among the nations. I mean, and you're, you're no better than the nations, right? You worship their idols. 
You do, you commit their abominations, so to the nations you will go. Well, how are they wicked? We know they shed blood, they worship idols, and verse 9, in addition to shedding blood and worshiping idols, they commit lewdness. There is gross sexual immorality amongst these people. They forget God, verse 8. You've despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. And when you forget God, you'll do anything. We see here that they've done violence. They commit physical, sexual, financial violence. They've been unfaithful. Verse 6, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. The only thing that keeps them from being more violent is the mere limitation of their power. There isn't anything in them that is restraining them. It's merely and only the extent of their strength. So it's not just physical violence, or it's not just physical violence against enemies. It's uh, their mistreatment of their parents, verse 7. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. It's, It's not just physical violence or disrespect, It's also financial violence. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. There's sexual violence too. Verse 11. Verses 10 and 11. It's sexual violence against men and against women. That's how I read the passage. And they don't just follow their vile desires. Shedding blood and defiling themselves along the way. They are even worse than that. Verse 12, In you they take bribes to shed blood, their guns for hire. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. And why have they done this? Me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. They forgot the Lord and they have done great wickedness. Forgetting the Lord is always the way to the path. It's always the path to wickedness. And so, verse 13, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you've made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure, verse 14, and can your hands be strong? In the days that I shall deal with you, I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. How does he respond to this litany of evils? Verse 15, I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. And then in a kind of recapitulation of the theme of verses four and five, the guilt by the blood that you've shed and defiled by the idols that you've made. We have verse 16, and you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations. You shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. That is, if you think about one thing from this point, just know that forgetting the Lord is always the path to wickedness. It should not surprise us given this chapter in Ezekiel 22, that the Apostle Paul 
in Romans chapter 1 when he is trying to articulate how wicked everyone is before a holy God, he actually appeals to their turning away from the knowledge of God. Romans 1, Romans 1, 28, I think. Yeah. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are, gossip, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Scripture is, is very plain about the role of self-deception, which is itself sinful, uh, in order to forget God. The knowledge of God is pushing down on everyone. And yet we resist this clear knowledge of God. Why? Because we want to go our, our own way. We want to choose our own path. We want to um, reject the Lord and plunge ourselves into dissipation, to, to seek our own ruin. And the message from Ezekiel 22 is, come home, come home. You have been scattered, you will be scattered, and then they are scattered. And if you are a scattered child of God, listening to this sermon, then the message is, come home. Return to Christ. Not everything that is scattered has to stay that way. God scatters, he can also gather. In a moment, we'll see that he gathers for wrath. But remember, he gathers for mercy. So cry out to him. All right, that's our our second point. That one way that the Lord... Um, responds to wickedness is he recognizes the worthless. He doesn't hide our sin, but he exposes it. And also another way is the Lord scatters the wicked. He will not let their deeds go on forever. But also the Lord gathers for wrath. That's what we see in verses 17 to 22. So the Lord In verses 17 to 22, the kind of culmination is in verses 21 to 22. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. So why does he do this? Why does the Lord melt and blow? Well, it's because, verses 17 to 20, they are impure. They are impure. Instead of being pure silver, they are a dross of silver. They're silver mixed with bronze, tin, iron, and lead. Look at verse 18. The house of Israel, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. 
And he says, 19, because you become dross, I'll gather you. And why? Verse 20, as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to bow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. Now, in the ancient world, you heated impure silver to extremely high temperatures, and then you blew air over it. And the air would apparently combine with the impurities that would float to the top, leaving you pure silver or purish silver in its place. So this is a refining process in order to make the silver more valuable. When it's dross, when it's silver mixed with the tin and the bronze and all the other junk, it's worthless. And most silver is not like gold where you could, you know, find a a rock of gold or however they do it. Uh, it, It's actually extracted and then needs to, most silver goes through a purification process. And so this extreme heat and blowing over the dross is the way to refine it and to make it better. Now, there are, um, I of course have never purified silver, but I I have worked a lot with a non-toxic, non-staining compound that was developed in order to clean wallpaper. And you have too. It's called Play-Doh. Play-Doh was developed in order to clean wallpaper and it didn't quite work out for the company, but the beauty of capitalism is you've got a product that you've made and you figure out something else to do with it. Now, I, um, I tremble to make this uh, example in front of uh, Denise, who's an artist, but um, I, did, I did Google this to, to confirm, but I'm still even, I'm even still I'm a little sheepish. There are three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Okay. And, um, and so you've got your red Play-Doh, you've got your yellow Play-Doh, you've got your blue Play-Doh. And then yellow and blue Play-Doh, you take it together. And what, what do you do if it, if it, you know, you roll some yellow and blue Play-Doh together? Yellow and blue make? Green. green. Good. All right. So, and then I've got my green Play-Doh. Now, invariably, what happens when you've got your red Play-Doh, your yellow Play-Doh, your blue Play-Doh, maybe you've got some magenta Play-Doh, you know, they've got all sorts of different kinds of colors. What happens when you get a bunch of kids playing Play-Doh together? Invariably, the red Play-Doh and the yellow Play-Doh and the blue Play-Doh and the magenta Play-Doh and the purple Play-Doh, they all kind of become this, forgive me, kind of vomitous brown-green Play-Doh, right? It's just you open up the little lid and you think it's going to be because the the lid is red. You open it up and you think it's going to be red Play-Doh, but it's not. It's just some kind of gross color. Right? It's a, it is, it's, a, it's a gross color. And as best I know, it's irreversible. 
right? You just throw that junk away or you, you know, you do something with it, but, but you don't, you don't say, I'm going to make this brown, green thing. I'm going to make this into red, yellow, blue Play-Doh. That would be a fool's errand. And the good news is that you are not Play-Doh. Yes, there is sin mixed in with your righteousness. And Satan wants to say, that's the best you'll ever be, is this vomitous green-brown lump of a person. But the Lord loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. And so he puts you in the furnace of sanctification and he blows over you with love. Why? It's just to torture you, to make you feel bad? No, to make you the better you that you were always meant to be, to burn out of you the bronze and the tin and all the other junk of sin and to present you before himself holy and blameless. Sanctification is the process whereby God takes you through the furnace of his love in order to make you more like Christ. You know, it's interesting. um, We talk about how, um, you know, well, I'm only human. If we we say I'm I'm only human, then what what we're, we're trying to say is, well, you know, I'm human, so I got angry or I said that thing I shouldn't have. But, you know, totally understandable. No, when you sin... You're less than human. Jesus is perfect humanity. And so in whatever way I sin, I'm actually subhuman, right? I, I'm, I'm not like Jesus isn't I'm only human. No, I am acting in a way that is contrary to who the Lord made me to be. So God responds to sin by exposing it. God responds to sin by scattering people and God, God gathers people for the furnace. But for us who are in Christ, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, the furnace of the Lord is a furnace of love to purify us. God loves us too much to let us remain the way that we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not let us stay how we were. And even now, we can hope for better us that, that the shameful, detestable, worthless things that we do think are will be burned out of us. We pray that you would purify us and that you would do so gently, lovingly, tenderly, but thoroughly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.